Well, please turn now in God's Word to the book of Romans, uh, to chapter 3 once again, uh, as we were reading from this portion this morning. Uh, we're returning to it this evening, page 1133 in the Church Bible, and we're going to read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is the great turning point in the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has been showing that no one is righteous. No one has any righteousness of their own. Then he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So as we saw this morning in verses 21 to 26, Paul is explaining God's solution to mankind's great problem. And it's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of democracy. Uh, it's not a lack of natural resources. It is a lack of righteousness. And it is a problem because there is nothing that any man or woman can do about it. We cannot make ourselves righteous because we can't keep God's righteous law. And so the solution is found in God. God himself does what we cannot do. God provides righteousness for sinners, a righteousness that comes apart from the law, a righteousness that we receive by faith. God declares us not guilty in the courtroom of heaven, not because of anything that we have done. We are justified freely and by his grace. It's only because Jesus Christ has paid the redemption price and borne the wrath of God for us. So that's the solution uh, 
to our lack of righteousness in verses 21 to 26. And now this evening we're looking at verses 27 to 31. And we see here three implications that flow from this justification by faith. Before you take medicine, you're supposed to read the leaflet carefully and note all the side effects that are listed there. And of course, some medicines have very, very many side effects listed. These side effects are usually unpleasant, undesired things that come along with the remedy itself. Paul has described the remedy, the medicine, the cure in verses 21 to 26. Now in these verses, he's dealing with three side effects that ought to follow the experience of justification by faith. But in the case of the gospel, these side effects are not unintended consequences. They are entirely deliberate on God's part. They may not always be pleasant for us, but there is no question that they are very, very good for us. Paul here is anticipating objections and questions that might be raised particularly by Jewish readers of the letter, but as we'll see, they apply to us this evening as well. So three side effects, three implications that follow along from the cure of the gospel. First of all, verses 27 and 28, the gospel humbles sinners and excludes boasting. The gospel humbles sinners and excludes boasting. Ever since God gave his law to the Jews three and a half thousand years ago at Mount Sinai, there has been the temptation for them to boast about it. And it's not hard to see why. It's a tremendous privilege to be given the law of God. It's a wonderful, precious thing to be highly valued. And and we read about that in other parts of the Bible. Psalm 147, for example, verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. God gave Israel and Israel alone out of all the nations of the world, his law. And that wasn't meant to make them proud. It was meant to make them praise, as the psalmist realized. Praise the Lord, he says. But far too often the Jews prided themselves on their knowledge of the law and what they thought was their keeping of the law. Certainly this was true, wasn't it, of Paul the Pharisee. Remember how he says to the Philippians, as far as legalistic righteousness goes, I was blameless, faultless. Keeping the law, yes, I did that perfectly. But if we're not saved by keeping the law, but by faith in what Jesus our Savior has done, Well, the whole idea of boasting is 
ridiculous, isn't it? We don't have anything to boast about because we haven't done anything. Faith is all about receiving what someone else has done for us. Being saved through faith is trusting someone else to save you because you have no power or ability to save yourself. You imagine someone boasting about being rescued from drowning. Someone falls into the water, they can't swim, and they're thrashing around, and they're going under, and they have no hope of saving themselves, and a lifeguard jumps in and pulls them out of the pool. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it, for that person to boast about his salvation. As if, you imagine him saying something like, well, now, when the, when the lifeguard dragged me out of the pool, my unconscious body was lying in an unusually helpful position that made it much easier for the lifeguard to get me out of the pool. Imagine trying to claim some credit for an emergency operation on a, 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 performed by a surgeon to save your life. Imagine saying afterwards, well, my perforated ulcer was just in the perfect place for surgery. I, I really helped the surgeon with, with the operation by making sure that my ulcer was in just the right place. It's just ludicrous, isn't it? It's stupid. It's bizarre. There's nothing to boast about. You didn't do anything. Somebody else did it all. All the credit belongs to those who rescued you in your helplessness. And it's just like that with the gospel, isn't it? All the praise belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We boast in Him, in the Lord, not in ourselves. That's why the saints before God's throne in heaven sing in Revelation 7 verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It belongs to Him. It was His idea. He did it. He accomplished it. He applied it. It has nothing to do with us. That's why we have such an emphasis in our communion season on thanksgiving. That's why we have this service of thanksgiving at the end of the communion season. Because all the praise and all the thanks belongs to the Lord. And we never want to forget that. We don't take one single scrap of it for ourselves, do we? Can you imagine if we introduced a little item in the service, part of the order of service, when we give ourselves a pat on the back, when we congratulate one another, give each other a round of applause, and everybody stands up and takes a little bow because we became Christians. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's a horrible, horrible idea. And you're all saying to yourselves, well, I would never, ever do that. I would never be so crass as to think of boasting in myself or taking credit for my salvation. And maybe we wouldn't do it in that horribly crass way. But we do do it, don't we? We do boast. We do forget that we have been justified by faith apart from observing the law. And perhaps one of the ways that this comes out 
one of the particularly ugly ways that it shows itself is when we self-righteously look down on those who are not Christians. Or some of them at least. We wrinkle up our noses in disgust at the way they behave. And perhaps we have the voice of the Pharisee inside us, even if we don't say the words out loud. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. You see a drunk man tottering down the street in the middle of the afternoon. What are the thoughts that go through your head? Are you filled with compassion? Are you sorry for that man and the sin that is wrecking his life? Or do you just feel disgust and self-righteousness? I would never do that. What a pathetic individual. I'm glad I'm not a loser like him. I wonder how we feel in our hearts about some of the children, some of the parents that come along to our holiday Bible club. How would we feel about them coming along to our services, our weekly meetings? We say, well, that would be wonderful. That's what we want. That's why we're doing this. But I wonder how we would really feel if lots of them started coming along and their children are mixing with our children. These men and women with their tattoos, their piercings, their foul language, bad habits, shambolic home life. I wonder, do we expect people to change first before they come to our church? Do we expect them to clean up their act a bit? Or are we ready and eager to warmly welcome them without any reservation, to welcome them as they are, sick people who desperately need a doctor, lost people who desperately need a shepherd to go and look for them? We forget so easily, don't we, that we are no different. Apart from the grace of God, we are justified by faith apart from observing the law. It's so easy to forget that all we are and all we have, we owe to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You and I did not deserve to be saved. It's not that we were better than those people out there. We are no better. We may be worse, but God has had grace and mercy upon us. It's so easy to start to think that we ourselves are holy and good and deserve God's blessing. Maybe we're even proud of the fact that we come to the Lord's Supper. And we forget that it's a table for sinners. The Lord's Supper speaks of our helplessness and our need, uh, our need for a Savior, our need for someone who will give his life in our place to save us because we are so 
unable to save ourselves. It's not just the Jews that needed to hear this. Perhaps it's Reformed Presbyterians in 2023 as well. And if we can get hold of the things that we've been thinking about over our communion season, it will act as an antidote against this kind of proud boasting and self-righteousness. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. No place for it in our hearts. No place for it in our churches. The gospel humbles sinners and excludes boasting. Then secondly, in verses 29 and 30, we see that the gospel unites believers and excludes discrimination. The gospel unites believers and excludes discrimination. Paul continues his attack on this Jewish tendency to boast in their privileged position by brilliantly arguing from one of the central doctrines of the Jewish creed, and that was monotheism, the belief that there was only one God. And you may know how the Jews would recite Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 every day. It's called the Shema uh, by the Jews uh, because that's the first word of the verse, the word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's something that the Jews were absolutely clear about. There is one God. And so Paul says, okay, we all agree, do we, that there is only one God? Absolutely, yes, only one God. Well then, Paul says, if there is only one God, then he must be the God of all people and not just the God of the Jews. And if there is only one God, then there can only be one way of salvation for all people, for Jews and for Gentiles alike. And what is that way of salvation? It is justification by faith. Verse 30. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's not that he justifies some people through the law and some people through faith. No, one God, one way of salvation for all people. Justification by faith. In other words, all human distinctions are obliterated by the gospel as far as salvation is concerned. There is no Jew or Gentile when it comes to salvation. There is no male or female. There is no young or old, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, slave or free. There is no difference at all in Christ. We are all one in Christ because we are all saved in exactly the same way. We're united by the same faith in the same Savior. And the Lord's Supper that we celebrated this morning is again a visible symbol of exactly this. It's a picture of our unity in Christ. There is one loaf. We may have individual little pieces of bread, but it all comes from the one loaf. One loaf because we are one body united to Christ and trusting in Him. I don't often quote from N.T. Wright, 
but on this, he is very good. He says, the message is simple. All who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. That's what Paul's doctrine of justification is all about. All who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. And this was particularly important for Paul to stress in Rome, where the tensions between Jewish believers and Gentile believers were running very, very high. Paul's going to come back to this issue. He's going to address it in chapters 14 and 15. But he's laying the theological foundation here. The gospel unites all believers together. It excludes discrimination. There is no place for it in the Christian church. And it's so important, isn't it, that we remind ourselves of that today. We need to be reminded of it because there are so many denominations in the Christian church. So many tribes and wings and groupings. And we need to be reminded that we are all one in Christ because we are all justified through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no place, there is no excuse for Reformed Presbyterians ever to look down on other Christians because they don't see things in exactly the same way as we do. And there is no place for other Christians to look down on Reformed Presbyterians. We're all saved in the same way. It's not that our traditions and our distinctive principles don't matter. It's not that they're not important. They are. But they are not what justify us. They are not what save us from hell. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. And then within our own congregation, coming down to the smaller scale, it's good to remember this truth. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. None of us was righteous to begin with, and the righteousness that we now have comes from God through Jesus Christ. And that ought to produce in us humble love for one another that has absolutely no place for feuding or quarreling or grudges. We may disagree on a whole range of things. We don't all see everything the same way. But what is far, far, far more important than any of those controversial things is this awesome reality that binds us all together forever, for eternity, in the deepest possible way. We are all one in Christ. And maybe there is someone in the congregation that you have a quarrel with, someone that you haven't been getting on with, Maybe you've been giving them the cold shoulder. Maybe you've been nursing a grudge against them. It's completely out of line. It's completely inappropriate. It's a denial of the reality that this justification by faith has created. So the gospel humbles sinners 
and excludes boasting. It unites believers and excludes discrimination. And then one final consequence of the gospel. Uh, The gospel upholds the law and excludes antinomianism. Apologies for the big word. The gospel upholds the law and excludes antinomianism. Antinomianism is the idea that the law doesn't matter. Don't need to keep the law. Don't need to bother about the law at all. Well, that is not an implication of justification by faith because the gospel, Paul says here in verse 31, upholds the law and it excludes antinomianism. The third objection that Paul anticipates is something like this. If all you're saying is true, Paul, if we are justified by faith, if our righteousness comes apart from the law, if our righteousness has nothing to do with keeping the law, well then, does that not mean that the law is useless? The law is obsolete. We can junk it. For the Jew, the law was their most treasured possession. You all know Psalm 119, verse 72. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And yet, if Paul is right, if justification comes apart from the law, well then, what use is the law now that we are justified by faith? And this is a temptation for Christians today. Perhaps it's not a temptation for you, but it is a great temptation for many Christians today. The devil works very hard at trying to twist our understanding of the truth. And when the doctrine of justification by faith is preached, justification by faith alone and not by works, when that is being preached, the devil is doing his best to make us conclude that the law doesn't matter. And so he'll say something like this, isn't this doctrine wonderful? Justification by faith alone apart from the law. God saves you because you trust in Jesus and it has nothing to do with keeping God's commandments. And you know what that means, don't you? You can break God's commandments. You don't need to keep God's commandments at all and you'll still go to heaven. It doesn't really matter if you give in to sin because your righteousness comes from God. You can't work it up yourself. It's nothing to do with your own obedience. So go ahead and sin. Give in to this temptation. Give in to that temptation. All your guilt is taken away through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is wonderful. We don't need the law anymore. We can forget about the law. And that may not sound very plausible uh, here now when you're sitting in church listening to a sermon, but it can sound very, very plausible, can't it, when you're in the fire of temptation. There's just enough truth mixed in with error to make it really, really dangerous. 
Or perhaps you've heard the view expressed by some Christians, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Law was for the Old Testament people of God, but that's not us. We're in the New Testament now. We're living in a new era of grace. We don't need to be so fussy and so pernickety and so precise about all these details of worship and keeping the Sabbath and all of that sort of thing. You Reformed Presbyterians, you're living as if you're in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. This is the age of freedom. Why are you trying to bring back the law? Why are you imposing the law on us? We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. The law's finished. It's done. And Paul here emphatically rejects that idea. By no means, he says. Very strong phrase in the original language. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. Far from it. Absolutely not under no circumstances. Rather, Paul says, quite the opposite. We uphold the law. Now, he's not elaborating on this here. He will. He, he's going to come back to it in chapter 6, 7, and 8. But he says enough there, doesn't he, in that little sentence, in those few phrases. He says enough to make it clear that we are not finished with the law. We can't just ignore the law. How does the gospel uphold the law? Well, let me say a couple of things. Paul has already said in verse 21 that the law testifies to this righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's one way that the gospel upholds the law, because the law promises the gospel. The law testifies to it. It's all there in the Old Testament, preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ and justification by faith. It shows us why we need to be justified by faith in Christ. It tells us how we get justification through faith in Jesus Christ. So the law testifies to this righteousness that comes from God. But then what Paul especially means by the gospel upholding the law is what he's going to come back to later on in this letter, that it's only those who have been justified by faith apart from the law who are able to keep the law's requirements. It's only people who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ who are actually able to keep the requirements of the law. We're not saved by keeping the law, but we are saved for keeping the law. We don't keep the law in order to be saved. Rather, God saves us by grace and then, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then, because He has so changed us by His Holy Spirit, we are able to begin to keep the law. We don't keep the law to be saved. We are saved so that we can begin to keep the law. Before we were Christians, we couldn't keep the law. 
Maybe you tried. Maybe you can remember trying before you became a Christian. You thought, I'm going to do what the Bible says. I'm going to live according to the Bible. Martin Luther tried to do that, and it nearly drove him mad, literally, out of his mind. Listen to what it says in Romans 8, verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Before you become a Christian, you cannot keep the law. But after you become a Christian, God gives you a new nature. His Holy Spirit lives inside us and enables us to obey God. And so it says in Romans 8 verse 5, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you, and He gives you the power and the strength that you didn't used to have so that you can obey God's law. I wonder, do you really understand that? If you're a Christian this evening, you are able to do something that non-Christians can't do. You can obey God's law. That doesn't mean that we always do obey His law, but we can. And that's what the Lord calls us to do. He calls us to walk in the way of His commandments. We're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So far from throwing the law in the bin and just doing whatever we feel like doing, now that we're Christians, we study the law all the more diligently. That's why we're going through the Ten Commandments. It's because the Ten Commandments give us the pattern of how God wants us to live. Jesus says that we are to teach everything that He has commanded. And now that we are Christians, we are able to build our lives on every word that comes from His mouth. And the law shows us how to live a life that's pleasing to God. It shows us the blueprints for a happy, prosperous, God-glorifying life. It's God's manual for satisfaction and for blessing, for our help and for our good. It's all here in the law. And now that we've been justified by faith apart from the law, now we're able to do it. Now we're able to obey it. It brings us peace and freedom. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 45, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. That's the very opposite of the way some Christians today would talk. They would say seeking out God's precepts and studying the law and preaching the law, that's not going to bring freedom. That's just going to make everybody miserable. Or John puts it like this in 1 John 5 verse 3. This is love for God, carrying out His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. God's law is not burdensome. It's not wearisome. It's a delight because He has changed our hearts and filled us with His Spirit. The gospel upholds the law and excludes antinomianism. So, as we leave our communion season, when we've thought in some detail about how we have been justified apart from the law, Let's resolve 
that we're never going to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us. Let's resolve here and now that we're going to put an end to all discrimination and feuding with fellow Christians for whom Christ died, whether that is in person or online. And let's uphold the law in true gospel fashion by studying every word of it and building our lives on it. We don't keep God's laws to save ourselves, but we keep God's law because he has saved us and changed us and given us the power to live as he commands. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you again for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for this glorious truth of a righteousness from God apart from the law. And we pray, Lord God, that uh, as those who have received the cure of the gospel, uh, we pray that these implications, these consequences, these side effects would be more and more true of each one of us. We pray, Lord God, that you would keep us from boasting in ourselves, from all self-righteousness and all the horrible forms that it takes. We pray, Lord, that you would emphasize to us again that we are all one in Christ, that there is no place for discrimination, but that we are united through the same salvation, the same Savior. And we pray, Lord God, that you would keep us from despising and downgrading the place of your law in our lives. Uh, keep us, Lord, ever from that legalism that thinks that we can save ourselves and earn your blessing and your favor by keeping the law. But we pray, Lord, that we will uphold the law, that uh, filled by your Spirit, we will seek to walk in the paths of your commandments and so know your peace and your joy. Lord, help us, we pray, to do these things, to practice these things in this coming week. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.